say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who the eternal spirit, sorry, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Down to verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And over to Hebrews 10 verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Amen. Thanks, David and Janine. Well, keep your Bibles open between those three chapters because we'll be flipping around a little bit. But uh, maybe it's not such a good idea meeting only every fortnight as a church because it means we've got to combine messages. So we're doing two messages this morning. (laughs) And there's a whole lot of other things we need to do. So we can actually end up filling out our time, can't we? But I'm glad that everyone's here this morning. And I wonder if I was to ask a question. Oh, there you go. That's reset. That's right. Maybe I can hear it worse than you because it's just there. It's the air compressor. But if I was to ask you all a question this morning, uh, if you have or have perhaps ever had a guilty conscience, if I was to ask everyone here, and it's rhetorical, you can keep it inside your head, has anyone ever had or still has a guilty conscience? I think there'd be 100% of us that would put our hands up if you're a normal person. Because we're honest people, right? So we would admit to that. You see, guilt is something that we all experience in life and there are many triggers for it. 
There are many accusations. There are many uh, things that come from the outside, from the community we're in. There are many accusations that come from within. Words that have been spoken to us, words that have shaped us in our upbringings, uh, in, in our experiences in life that, that seek to condemn us and remind us time and time again of this sense of guilt. Now, on one level, guilt is actually a good and necessary thing. Um, before we were Christians, uh, before we came to Christ, was it not a sense of guilt, a, a, a guilty conscience that prompted us to seek out salvation in Christ? I, I hope that's the case for you. If you, if you. if you haven't yet come to that, then maybe you've, you've come to Christ a, another way and that's something that we need to have a chat about it at some point because the reality is, as the Bible teaches and as we as Christian people know full well, that we are in fact actually guilty people when it comes to our standing before God, our creator. There is guilt. Uh, it's, the, uh, it's, the, it's our sin, it's our rebellion, it's our disconnection and brokenness from God, a sin that affects our relationships and our environment and, and every aspect of life. So at some point, guilt was a good and necessary Thing in our conscience to draw us to Christ, to draw us to seeking salvation from God. But if I want to ask you this morning, as Christian people specifically, how many of us still struggle with a deep sense of guilt? How many of us have an overactive conscience that plagues us, even as God's people, fairly and squarely, securely in his family through Jesus Christ? What does God's word have to say about that? What can we learn from God's word about that experience? I know some people, are the, the way the life has panned out for them, there's uh, so many regrets. Uh, I have them. I was only reflecting on a few the other day as a parent, as I come into that, that, uh, that stage of life where you, you, it takes a while to figure out, but you realise, oh, your kids are adults and they're, you know, and you start thinking back, how could I have perhaps done things better? You know, our conscience often plagues us, doesn't it? Even as Christian people. And it can serve sometimes as this constant reminder, this sense of guilt or shame uh, that you failed, that you're, that you're not good enough, that you haven't made it. It's non-stop. It's, it's the sort of things that keeps our minds awake at night. Now, most people outside of Christianity have a couple of different ways um, to deal with it. If you look around our society, most people, it seems, uh, either only have the occasional conscience that sort of kicks in uh, at some time or other uh, here and there, or else they've managed to somehow successfully switch it off. Okay, this is how a lot of people survive in life. Uh, that's certainly how it looks recently, doesn't it? If you look at our, what's been, uh, being revealed in our, in our parliament, behaviour in, in parliaments, both federal and state at the moment, that's coming to light and that the media are slavishly reminding us of all the time. Um, you know, you do look at it and you think, what, what on earth is the matter with these people? You know, why, why, you're at work, don't you have a job to go, what are you doing? Until you realise that, I've been in several work cultures and environments and that's pretty well typical behaviour in any industry across all of society. Let's not be naive and kid ourselves. But it's interesting, isn't it, uh, that um, a society who once perhaps were quite happy to switch off their conscience or to entertain themselves so that they forget about it are now suddenly have this conscience provoked and they're now wanting to seek some sort of justice and real change. I don't know about you this morning, and by the way, real change needs to happen. Um, I don't know about you this morning with you and your conscience, but maybe you're thinking, if only I could get some relief from these feelings as a Christian person. If only I could get some sort of, you know, freedom from this guilt. 
this conscience that plagues me day and night. Well, we can learn a lot this morning from that passage, the three chapters, uh, most of chapter 8, chapter 9 and half of chapter 10. And it's fairly repetitious, that's why we chose a few uh, specific passages to just kind of summarise. But if you're an ancient Israelite, so if you're one of God's Old Testament people, because I'm speaking to God's New Testament people this morning, but you didn't quite have the same opportunities to distract yourself or to switch off your conscience. You see, the entire religious Jewish system of worship was all about a constant reminder of how guilty you are. You, you came to church not to sing happy songs. You came to church to be reminded of your sin, to be reminded that that guilt is real, that that guilt is something you can only come to this place at this time through these specific people, as we'll see, to try and get some sort of relief from. The whole system was, was focused around it, the rituals, the feasts, the sacrifices, all these things that God gave to his people through Moses through the law of Moses, of how they were to be in this old covenant with him, what we now call the old covenant with him. This is how they needed to be. And yet it was a system that continually kept them reminded that in the face of a holy and righteous God, sin and guilt were serious, these things were real, and they were real enough to keep you disconnected from God and cut off from him. So this somewhat large section of Hebrews that we're looking at today looks back at two major themes from Israel's Old Testament religion, which it calls the first covenant that God made between God and his people. And there's a focus on these two themes. The first one is the tabernacle and the second one is the sacrifices. The tabernacle was, was the temple tent. This is before they had a solid temple in Jerusalem, but initially it was, uh, it was the tent version of their temple and it symbolised God's presence among God's people. And as you know from the Exodus, uh, they uh, spent a number of years, 40 years in fact, wandering around aimlessly in the um, wilderness because of their own uh, sin and rebellion. And during that time, uh, they built this tabernacle and it would come with them and they would set it up and establish it. And it was a constant reminder that God is with them, that God is with his people, that he has saved them from Exodus and from the Egyptians and that he is now with them. And of course, as they grew into a nation uh, and they took the, the promised land and they set up an, a, a capital in Jerusalem, they then built a more permanent structure, the temple, which did the same thing, but more permanently, that God is here with us. And the second thing was, were the sacrifices uh, that uh, this is, their whole religion is, is, is sit, uh, focused on. And this is all about the slaying of animals. It's about the, the bloodletting of animals. And there's blood that had to be sprinkled by the priests in order to cleanse the people from their sins and their guilt. And these two major themes, tabernacle and sacrifice, are hallmarks of the old covenant religion. The tabernacle being the dwelling place of God and the sacrifices being the ritual practices to try and cleanse us, cleanse God's people from a guilty conscience before God. And yet history tells us that there was never any end to this. It just continued Year in, year out, week in, week out, day in, day out, the same rituals. Which is what the writer or the preacher to the Hebrews, these new Jewish Christians who have come under the new covenant, is now trying to address with them. 
But you know the most strangest thing uh, about the tabernacle, which we'll look at first? Let's look at the tabernacle. Here's an image of uh, what the tabernacle looks like, what people assume it looks like. There is a guy in the United States, I believe, it's probably, it's probably more than one, uh, and it's usually a guy, um, who has built a replica of this. Uh, you can do tours and everything. Uh, I'm told that where, there's because there's lots of gold in it, which we'll hear about, uh, he's used gold spray paint. But uh, nonetheless, um, there you go. It's kind of missing the point to go and build a literal-sized tabernacle. But... There it is. Here's, here's an example of it. And um, if we were to have a look from uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 2 to 4, it gives us a description of this tabernacle. It's not up on the screen, but it is in your Bibles. Let me read it to you. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 2 to 4. And keep this in mind. This is the structure that represents God's presence. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room, there was a lampstand and a table and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. And then behind that is a curtain, verse 3. Behind the curtain was a second room called the most holy place. And in that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? God's people brought that with them. That was like the mobile version uh, to, as they went into war and so on. And this was covered in gold and it was all on... Uh, all, on all sides and inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna representing what the provision of god when they were in the wilderness god gave them food when they needed it so they've kept a jar of manna aaron's staff was in there you remember moses's brother the one who did all the talking to pharaoh and demanded that he let god's people go and he had that staff that was used miraculously to demonstrate the power of god and Somehow he has a reference that this staff had sprouted leaves, um, you know, it's in, indicating somehow that it's quite special. And there were also the stone tablets of the covenant. I mean, this is a sacred chest. You think about those, those emblems. These, are the, these aren't fakes. These are the, the real deal at that time. But here's the thing. This magnificent, glorious-looking tent, this complex, with all its significance, actually had one loud word at the front of it figuratively and that was you can't come in here keep out in fact this is not for you if you're a normal Israelite you'd never even know what I've just described to you they would only know of things there'd be rumors about what was in this sacred uh, holy place and then the most holy place behind that they had no way of knowing if you were a normal everyday Israelite the closest that you could get was to stand outside in the courtyard there and just watch on. Let's keep reading from verse 6 of chapter 9. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests would enter regularly into the first room and they would carry on their religious duties. Where's everyone else? They're outside. They can't come into this first room. But when it came to the most holy place, even the priests couldn't all go in there. Only the high priest goes in. And even then, he only goes in once a year on the special day, the Day of Atonement. Verse 7, but only the high priest enters the inner room, that's the second room, only once a year, never without a blood sacrifice, which he offers for himself, and then he offers for the sins of the people, that the, the sins that they had committed in ignorance. So where are the people? Well, they're still outside. They're still outside in the courtyard. You see, you, you, you can go up to the tabernacle, and you can watch while the priests go into the first room, and you can imagine what they're perhaps up to in there, and... and, and 
and, and you can be there on the Day of Atonement, that annual pilgrimage where you'd come to that special one day where one of those priests, the high priest, would go, he'd get to go into the second room behind the curtain that was the most holy place. And you know, as tradition has it, at some point they used to tie a rope around him uh, just in case he did something wrong and was struck down dead and they could drag him out from there or if he perhaps cried out, quick, I'm about to be struck down dead, drag me out. Uh, who knows? But again, where's everyone else? Still stuck outside. Well, once that was happened, once you turned up to this place on that special day and it was done for you, you could then leave declaring and knowing that you were ceremonially clean. That the high priest with the blood sacrifice had been able to make you ceremonially clean. He'd offered that sacrifice on your behalf. But you can't go in. You can never go in. And no matter how much you long for it, it can't clear your conscience. In fact, probably by the end of the day, as people went back about their business into their communities, as they left the tabernacle, that knackle, for many of them, those feelings of guilt, that conscience would come back and smoulder away again. But you know what? That's what Hebrews tells us. It was meant to be that way. Have a look at verses 8 to 9 of chapter 9. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance into the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. Isn't this interesting? This is God saying, this is what you need to do to be able to even have a hope of connecting with me and knowing me in, in the Old Testament covenant relationship. And yet we read here in Hebrews 9 that the Holy Spirit revealed that the very purpose of all that was so that you couldn't go in. It was, it was always going to, while it's in existence, it's going to stop you from connecting with God while it's still in use. The way to God is still closed. It even gets worse. Have a look at verse 9 of chapter 9. This is an illustration pointing to the present time, which is when? After Christ, when Hebrews was written. Now, it's an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. I don't know if you heard that. The writer to the Hebrew people in the New Testament, those under the New Covenant, God's people who have become followers of Jesus, is saying that no matter what the priest sacrificed, no matter how observant he was of those things, no matter how many awesome relics you got to put into the ark, no matter how much gold you laid, with, uh, laid it upon, it was never going to leave the people with clear consciences. That's the tabernacle. What about the sacrifice? That's what the rest of the detail in these three chapters focuses on over and over. It's a little bit repetitious, and rightly so. I think it's demonstrating uh, uh, the somewhat repetitious futility of this system. I suspect this morning there might be some of us here who actually uh, put off by the sight of blood. Would there be any of those prepared to say, absolutely, I can't stand the sight of blood? Yeah, there's, there's a number of them. It's just how, you, how you're wired. Um, I'll say this ironically, because my wife can do anything, I think, but um, there's one thing that she really, really finds hard, and that is the sight of other people's blood. And uh, this is a real challenge for her. In fact, her mouth goes dry. I can tell when it's happening. It's quite funny. Her mouth goes dry. Um, and when I say other people's blood, including her own children's, uh, but um, her mouth goes dry, and she starts feeling quite... She can actually start feeling quite light-headed at the sight of blood, which is not always a good thing when she was involved uh, quite hands-on in the sick bay there at the school, patching up cuts and grazes and things, but she, she has a good work ethic and got, would get stuck in. But I'd always laugh when she'd tell me, oh, sick bay was full today, and I'd just picture her there with the, with the dry mouth and the, 
holding on, holding on to things while she's comforting the children. But in the context of the message of Hebrews, back then most people would have had very strong stomachs. You would have needed to. Because bleeding animals were very much part of the, the, the gathered worship times of Israel every time they met. And, and, and the reason for this was that these sacrificed animals were symbols within Israel's religion. The sacrificed animal is going to stand there and be sacrificed in your place. That's why you brought one to, on the Day of Atonement. And, and it would be sacrificed in the place where you yourself should be standing and being sacrificed. And the blood of the animal is going to be splashed around as like this symbol that it's actually dead. Like this is its blood now outside of its body everywhere. Um, when in fact, um, it should have been you that was dead. But because the animal's blood has been shed, you get to start over again. You get to leave that place, the Day of Atonement, the tabernacle, because of what the priest has done on your behalf. And you get a clean start, free of guilt and shame. But guess what? It didn't work. It didn't work. Over and over again, there'd be these sacrifices at the tabernacle, which they continued to do even after they built the temple. And they became like these non-stop abattoirs where animals were just slaughtered over and over again as the blood was shed and in a desperate attempt to atone for the sins of the people. And on that one special day of the year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest, with all his courage, he'd go that one step further into the most holy, uh, uh, the most holy place with that blood sacrifice and in this symbolic hope that the sacrifice would be pleasing to God year in, year out. And it never worked. It never took away the guilt. Have a look at what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says. For this reason, it can never, these sacrifices, they can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. This is radical stuff. This is radical stuff for God's people to hear. Really confronting stuff. And being reminded of now as they've come to faith in Christ, some of the early Jewish people. Now think about it for a moment. You say, well, maybe I, I don't like the sound of that. What do you mean God set up something that, for failure? It should have worked, shouldn't it? Surely it, it could work. Surely at some point there'd come a point where it's worked. It's been achieved. You don't need to sacrifice the animals anymore. Well, Hebrews addresses that too in verse 2. He says, well, well, no. He says, if it could work, would they have not stopped being offered? In other words, the fact that it keeps happening over and over and over proves the point that it's not going to work and it can't work. There is no point for it to end. It says here, for the worshippers would have been cleared once and for all, wouldn't they? And, and, would they and, and they would no longer have felt any guilt for their sins. But they did have to keep doing it over and over again because the guilt was always there. You see, the stain runs deep. It runs way deeper, doesn't it? Do we really think that those sort of rituals done by us, by men, by human beings are going to be able to cleanse a guilty conscience. You think a ritual like that's going to actually right a wrong? It's not, is it? Well, remember those two things. And of course, it's on the back of this third thing. Uh, originally, these first Christians, uh, Jewish people, were being reminded not to go back. They were being tempted to go back uh, to the law. And this is a reminder from a few weeks ago, earlier on in Hebrews. It's a theme that runs right through it. 
Uh, we don't know why it may well have been that being a Christian uh, drew your attention to the Roman Empire a lot more than being a Jewish person. The Romans had worked out a relationship with uh, the Jews at the time, basically, and now these new Christians were growing and emerging and so it attracted their attention for persecution. And so these Jewish Christians, probably like all of us, would have gone, hang on a minute, let's weigh this up. Um, stay Christian, stay a follower of Yeshua, the Messiah, and you get a pretty hard time. Or drop out and go back to being Jewish and you get an easier time. You can continue turning up doing the rituals that we're familiar with and you go under the radar and Rome doesn't mind. Whatever the reason was, they're being pulled back to this law of Moses and to the tabernacle that shuts them out and to the sacrifices that reminds them of their guilt and fails to do anything about it. And you see, that's the whole point of the Old Testament. The whole point of the Testament of the Old Testament, is that it's pointing us to something better that's to come. It's pointing us and God's people, and now we can look back and go, oh, see how much better things are now in Jesus Christ. That's the point of the Old Testament. It's always promised that something new would come. When you go back through and read, oh, it's always said, the prophets always said, behold, a day is coming when. In one prophet in particular, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, he gets the biggest Old Testament quote in the New Testament in this passage. Um, David and Janine read, read a little bit of it. And here it is in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. So this is important, right? This is the most quoted chunk of scripture in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Verse 7. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. Skip down to verse 8. The time is coming, declares the Lord when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. This is the prophet Isaiah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, they did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is Jeremiah, centuries before Jesus. And that day had come in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. What does that sound like? That sounds like dealing with our guilty conscience once and for all. And I will forgive their wickedness, says God, and I will never remember, never again remember their sins. Do you know what this means? It means that God has made the old covenant obsolete. In Christ, that's what he's done. The title of our sermon this morning, or last week and this week, was Jesus the Obsoleter. It's a made-up word. But he's the one that has made what God set up first and foremost obsolete as he brings in this new covenant. And today's title is meant to be the priest who sits down. He's the Obsoleter who's now done the work and he sits down at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus replaces the tabernacle and he replaces the sacrifices which means as a christian person this morning if you've got something on your conscience and you have this sinking feeling that it deserves to be punished if you keep beating yourself up over it or for it if you're fearing the weight of god's disapproval if you're never quite sure where do i stand oh i don't want to die today or i don't want to die next week just give it another month and then maybe i'll be right if you're that sort of person you can stop doing that you don't need to think like that because jesus is already there in the presence of god before we get there 
and he's there on our behalf. He's the priest that went into the most holy of holies and he now stays in there, no rope attached to save him. He's in the presence of God at the right hand of God the Father. And it wasn't the sacrifice of slain animals, depending on what you could afford. Some people had to bring pigeons, others had to bring their prize bull, um, depending on where you fit it into society. Jesus went in there with his own blood once and for all. How good is that? Jesus has done for real what these Old Testament Jewish sacrifices could only ever do in shadows. If you're not sure about how futile it is, have a listen um, to Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 14. It's up on the screen. Under the Old Testament, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You see, it's futile. It's never-ending. But in Jesus, it ends. It has ended. It is final, and it is the last sacrifice. Verse 12 of chapter 10, But when this priest, that is Jesus, has offered, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. And you know what? It gets repeated again in chapter 10. It's like the Holy Spirit's been telling you this. The Holy Spirit has said this for centuries through, through the prophet Jeremiah. Look at it again, Hebrews 10 verses 15 to 18. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. He says, first of all, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. He repeats that same prophecy as a reminder. That is an amazing thing that God has done for us. That is an amazing thing that God has done for us. And you know, what better way to come into Easter than being reminded afresh from the book of Hebrews as we focus and reflect on the events of Jesus' life, of what led to Jesus' death and to his victorious resurrection on the third day. Well, what does that mean for you and I today? We're not Old Testament people. We're New Covenant people. But you know what? We have a stack of things that we often turn into rituals. I wonder if you can think of any. Or perhaps things that were never meant to be rituals that Jesus gave us to do, that we continue to follow, but we've turned them into rituals. We've turned them into maybe these are things that I can participate in and share in that can help me with my, with my conscience, my guilty conscience. And we turn what's meant to have demonstrated the, victorious, the, the victory that Jesus has and achieved for us, we turn them into... Old Testament going back rituals to appease our guilty conscience. Let me just bounce a couple off you. What about when we gather for communion? And I, and I grew up in a tradition like this. I, I suspect many of us here have. What about when we meet for communion? I, I, I just, it was set up as an altar. We, we used to call it the altar table. This is the altar. We've got communion, the Lord's Supper on the altar. It's not an altar. It's not an altar. Jesus gave it to us as a symbolic meal. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. It was in the context of everyday life together as God's, God's free people. God's guilt-free, conscious-free people in that condemnatory sense of the word. You know, some traditions still practice very clearly that communion is an altar and that you've got to get yourself pure and right, confess all your sins before you can come and partake in it. That's not in the scriptures. 
The only time it's mentioned is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I think it is, or possibly 11, uh, where it says where the church has been condemned because they were turning God's beautiful free meal uh, into a feast of gluttony, where all those who could eat at home were coming and feasting out on the food in the church for communion, and all the poor, who, for whom this would probably be their only meal for the week, were missing out. And he says, you need to repent of that. That's the only time confession of sin is mentioned. But we come to remember, says Jesus, and to celebrate what God has done for us. It's not an altar. Uh, what about baptism? I know there's different, uh, probably only two versions, of, uh, of when to be baptised. But baptism itself is a symbol. I hear people in our Baptist and um, congregational church uh, traditions, you know, they come to faith in Christ. I grew up and well-meaning Christians would say, I can't get baptised. I haven't been a Christian for 45 years yet. I actually heard someone say that regularly. Uh, my dad was in pastoral ministry back then in a, in a fairly what, what we'd call now a legalistic church. At the time, it was hailed as a progressive church. Go figure. Uh, but um, where, where that was one of the things he had to really wrestle to trying to convince people in their 40s and 50s who've been Christians since their teenage years that, guys, why haven't you been baptised? You should have been baptised the week after you came to faith. The next day, there's water, what stops me? Why? would They turned it into a, a ritual. Some sort of level that you had to attain and aspire to before you could become baptised. And what about this one? What about sacred spaces where we get to meet God? What about church buildings? And I, I haven't picked it up here. I think we've done really well. Sometimes leaving an old church building and building a new one is a great way to deal with it. <laughs> um, you know, there are even services for pastors to decommission an old church building. Decommission? What, what was it commissioned for? I don't understand that. I, it, it's a building. We're the church, the people. It's not a sacred place. It's not a unique place. This gathering's unique as God's people. We're unique and God is here with us because of that unique gathering and his presence is here, but it's just the building that's housing us. I love going on spiritual retreats. I don't get to because when I, when I, they're lonely, right? You're on your own. But when I do get there, I go, wow, this is, this is great. But, but I resist that urge to, to pursue those as some sort of special, sacred place better than everywhere else where I can just meet God even, even better. Because God's everywhere. God's with me. He's in us. He's in me and he's in us. And we can connect with God through Jesus Christ. Boldly, it says in the rest of chapter 10, boldly we can now approach the throne of God because Jesus sits at the right hand and has rested. Well, there's some things to think about this morning. And I think we need to um, ask God's spirit to speak to us and to help us. For some of us, this may be confronting. Oh, hang on a minute. I thought... I thought my Christian faith and the rituals that we do were, were good things because they're Christian. Well, we can very easily turn them into Old Testament things, old things, rituals that are inappropriate. So we need to ask God to reveal that to us and to change our hearts. Let, let's do that together now as God's people. Father, we thank you that boldly we can approach with all confidence your throne at any time, anywhere, through the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that we are people who need to do things. We are people who need tangible symbols. We are those who need constant reminding. And while these things can be helpful, we understand that. But Father, we want to confess this morning where 
we turn perhaps helpful symbols into unhelpful rituals that threaten to drag us back to the old ways. We ask again that you would uh, forgive us for those attitudes. We know that you have already forgiven us for those attitudes. And so, Father, I pray this morning for those who particularly suffer from ongoing guilt and shame and overactive conscience. Father, help us to see that we can stand boldly with our shoulders back, our lungs full, our heads held high because of what Jesus has achieved on our behalf. And when we come to you and when those thoughts crowd into our minds, Father, we declare what we know to be true about our relationship in Jesus, about the fact that he is there with you. He is at your right hand now, ruling and reigning, preparing to return, preparing to come back, not this time to judge sin, but this time uh, to bring with him the salvation that we long and hope for, finally and for all time. So we long for and hang out for that day. Help us to use our confidence wisely that we have in Jesus. Forgive us for when perhaps some of us take it a bit too far and become arrogant or self-confident. Father, either end of the scale, we ask for your forgiveness and we look forward to continuing to be the people you've called us to be, freely forgiven, guilt-free, no need for a conscience to continue plaguing us because Jesus, once and for all, has achieved forgiveness of sins. And we thank you in his name. Amen.